This is the day the Lord hath made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, some people have a way of complaining about life. But you know, my philosophy is that if we awaken this morning, we have a lot to be grateful for. At any rate, I'm grateful to be here, and I'm grateful you've tuned in to be with us. Tonight, I'm going to do a little bit more teaching than preaching, and so I hope that you will be with us in prayer as well as your presence. Join me please now for prayer. 
Oh God, your will be done. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. It's all in your name and to your glory. Amen. Have you ever experienced the Holy Spirit? With this question, the Apostle Paul pointed out that the Ephesians were missing something. Oh, they were Christians, all right, but they were incomplete Christians. The Apostle Paul was pointing out their deeper need. But like many moderns, the Ephesian Christians pleaded ignorance to the whole thing. No, they said, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. How often have we repeated the third article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and yet numbers are hazy by what we mean. The late Cardinal Cushing said that when he was a parish priest, he was summoned to a store to administer the last rites to a man who had collapsed. Following the guidance of his church, when he got to the man, he knelt down. He looked at him, he said, Do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in God the Son? Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? The man roused a little, looked around, and said to the crowd, Here I am dying, and he asked me a riddle. I reiterate, how often do we repeat the third article of the Apostles' Creed? I believe in the Holy Spirit, yet numbers are hazy by what we mean. We do not realize the potential of our own confession. But there's one thing we do realize. We live in an age that is fascinated with power. More and more power is the name of the game. Economic power, scientific power, military power, governmental power, corporate power, political power, group power. If there is a buzzword in our culture today, it is the word empowerment. But with all this fascination with power, what we really need to discuss is the divine power. I'm talking about the divine presence of God in the Holy Spirit. The writer in Acts says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Hear me now. The divine power is the only answer to our individual hopelessness and the church's powerlessness. Now I'd like to read you our scripture. And it comes from John's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. And if you have a Bible, I hope you will read along. This is so important. John's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I believe in the Holy Spirit in terms of an impossible task without him. Without the Holy Spirit, there will be no greater works. In verse 12, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do greater works than I do, and in fact will do greater works, because I am going to the Father. Probably none of us will be given outright a million dollars. 
But if we can imagine how breathless we would be if that were the case, that's the way we should feel about Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 12. Greater works than Jesus' works? Jesus, you have to be kidding, but he's not. He's talking to Christian believers. If he were kidding, why would he possibly make that promise that he did? Greater works than Jesus' works? When we think of Jesus' works, we think of his wonderful miracles. For instance, let's think of his healing the sick, calming the troubled sea of Galilee, feeding 5,000 people with a few fishes and small loaves, then casting out demons and raising the dead. When we think of these things, these are great miracles. And we know if we are honest with ourselves, we cannot do these things. Yet, how could he make a promise like he did? Let's look at the possibilities. First, the greater works could apply initially to the apostles who were promised that they would be given the ability to perform these miracles as the credentials of their office. Paul wrote to the Romans, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. To be very sure, these miracles were not greater than the Master's miracles. They were not greater in quality, for the servant is never greater than the Master. But they were greater in scope and quantity. In scope and quantity, for instance, Peter preached a single sermon and 3,000 people were converted. One preacher scholar says that our ministry will be greater than our Lord's because it will have greater reach and greater results. Now listen to this, greater reach. The land of Israel comprises about 8,000 square miles, roughly equivalent to the size of Palestine in Jesus' day. Think of what Jesus did or did not do in the days of his flesh. He never preached outside Palestine. His voice was never picked up on a worldwide network. The gospel was not preached during his lifetime in Europe. And the number of people he reached could probably only be in the thousands. And no matter what was going on in Palestine, Jesus himself never saw the moral degradation of a city like Rome. But compare this to the land area of the world today, the entire planet, 57.5 million square miles. 8,000 in that day, 57.5 million square miles today. The followers of Jesus have actually covered a territory thousands and thousands and thousands of times larger than what Jesus covered when he was in the flesh. And think about the 2,000 years that his disciples have been preaching. Probably the converts number in the millions, perhaps even the billions. Greater results. As many Bible students have said, it was great, Jesus, raising Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus had to die again. So it was true of all of those physical miracles that Jesus accomplished. Those people had to die again. But as our preacher scholar puts it, many of those people to whom Jesus ministered experienced not only spiritual healing, but spiritual healing as well, not only physical healing, but spiritual healing as well. And that's the point. We need to remember that the primary role of Jesus' physical miracles was to validate his spiritual ministry and the ministry that proclaims the Jewish Messiah. Do we get it? 
there are definitely those miracles of physical teaching. But Jesus' chief work was not performing those miracles of healing, but revealing the Father and bringing salvation to the world. Jesus said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. It is wonderful to have healing of the eyes. And I know somebody whose wife was blind for four months. It was wonderful for her to see again. It's one thing to see with the physical eyes, but it's even greater to see with the spiritual eyes. That is to receive the good news of Jesus Christ as it's intended to be received. A few years ago, my wife and I went to a celebration of a man who had taught Sunday school for 40 years. During the evening, he came over to me and he whispered with a tear in his eye. He said, Hal, keep on preaching Christ. That's the only thing that matters. He said this out of his own personal experience. Greater works than Jesus works. How is that possible? There's that little passage at the end of verse 12 that explains. Jesus said, because I am going to the Father. So the reason for these greater works is because Jesus was going to the Father, and that meant he was sending the Spirit. The Spirit was coming, and he would dwell in the believers and consequently bring about greater miracles. This is an important point, so underline it. The Spirit is releasing to us the life of Jesus so that it's still Jesus who is doing these greater things. Many people mistakenly think that we can do greater things than Jesus did when he was in the flesh. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the risen Christ who is empowered by the Spirit can do greater things in his disciples than he ever did when he was here in the days of his flesh. So Jesus continues to do these greater things. It's not ever us. It's always Jesus who does these miracles. Now, here's a key question for you. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, where were those people that he had physically healed, those hundreds of people? They were gone. They were not there. Only a few people were with him at the cross. And yet, when his disciples went out in the Spirit and proclaimed Christ, converts were won by the thousands. And these people became determined to face the lines, to be pulled apart at the rack, to be burned as torches rather than deny Jesus. Those are greater works anyway you look at it. And then secondly, without the Holy Spirit, there will be no praying in Jesus' name. So we come to prayer. God answers prayer. He may say, yes, no, maybe, wait a little while. I'm going to surprise you. You ought to know better. A little boy had been naughty. He had misbehaved. His mother sent him to bed. And a little while he came back and he said, Mother, I pray to God. She said, that's good. God will always help you to be good if you ask him to help you to be good. He said, oh, I didn't ask him to help me to be good. I asked him to help you to put up with me. Now, sometimes we get confused about prayer. So I want you to hear this from the very lips of Jesus himself who prayed this in verses 13 and 14. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask for anything, I will do it. Now, praying in Jesus' name is not a magic formula. We don't simply attach this to these other things that we're praying, guaranteeing that they're going to happen. This would be the Aladdin's lamp routine. God is not a genie who's going to be answering to all of our becks and calls. 
So praying in Jesus' name is not a magic formula. So what is praying in Jesus' name? What is prayer? Here are a few suggestions for you. Praying in Jesus' name is to pray as a believer, a Christian. Jesus was not talking to the world here. He was talking to his disciples. He was telling them that if you pray in my name, I will do it. He said, I will do it. He even said that twice. So he's talking about being a believer. The question is, can we pray whatever we're praying in Jesus' name? And then secondly, praying in Jesus' name is to pray on the merit of Jesus. None of us have any claims on God as far as our merit is concerned. If we get what we deserve, we will all spend eternity in hell. So when we come to God in prayer, we don't pray on our own merit. We pray on Jesus' merit. And Jesus has a claim on God. I'm going to give you a practical example. Here's a wife who goes out shopping on a husband's credit card. All right, the transaction depends upon the husband's credibility and his credit rating. But it's different with Jesus because there are no limits on Jesus' credit. No limits whatsoever. So we can ask whatever we want to ask. We can ask it in his name. And he says twice, he promises us, I will do it. And then thirdly, praying in Jesus' name is to pray in the desire of Jesus. What is the desire of Jesus? It is to glorify God. So you could say the goal of prayer is to glorify God. That's always the goal of prayer. Years ago, when I was the associate pastor at the First Methodist Church of Decatur, I remember we had a preaching mission and we asked the great preacher, Dr. Ralph Sockman, to come and preach for us a few days. I was assigned the task of being his driver. In other words, I was to show for him around, to be at his disposal, whatever he needed or wanted during that week. In some sense, praying in Jesus' name is like that. It's putting ourselves at the disposal of God and God's purposes and God's will, and it's praying as much as we can and as best we can for his purposes and will to be done. And then praying in Jesus' name is to pray in the place of Jesus. Where was Jesus praying when he made this prayer? He was facing the cross. It was the end of everything. It was the end of his agenda. His, his agenda. It was the end of the whole thing. It was absolutely the collapse, the apparent collapse. And yet Jesus knew that after the crucifixion was the resurrection. He knew there could be no beginning unless the old things that people had hoped for and sought went away. What was it that those disciples were praying for? If they prayed for anything, they prayed that Jesus would not have to go to the cross. But Jesus knew that even though there was crucifixion ahead, resurrection would follow. No crucifixion, no resurrection. So praying in Jesus' name is not simply a prayer to prevent things from happening to us. Praying in Jesus' name is to pray and to undergo whatever happens. We know that it's not the end. Whatever happens, that the resurrection is to follow. So how do we pray in Jesus' name? There's only one way, and that is to allow the Holy Spirit to pray in and through us. And then thirdly, there will be no obeying the commandments without the Holy Spirit. In reality, there's only one true test of love. You know what that is? Obedience or faithfulness. How did Jesus seek to obey God and to love God? By his faithfulness, his obedience. How does Jesus want us to love God? By our obedience, by our faithfulness. Now, how are we doing in this process of love? 
I'm talking about you and I'm talking to myself as well. How are we doing in this process of loving Christ and other people? Billy Graham told a story about a young boy who said to his parents, I didn't ask to be born. And they said to him, well, if you had, the answer would have been no. How are we doing in the process of loving God and other people? Now, all of us know people who are not doing very well in loving God and other people. We know children and teenagers who say they love their parents, and yet they cause them great grief by the way they live their lives. We know parents who say they love their children, and yet they give them a difficult time or hardly any time at all. We know husbands who say they love their wives and wives who say they love their husbands, and yet by their disregard and thoughtfulness, they cause each other great pain. And we know people who say they love God, yet without being faithful, these people are bringing only pain to the heart of God. So I want to ask you, how are we doing in this process of loving God? I'd like to ask you to answer these questions for yourself. These are the questions that I ask myself all the time. Number one, am I able to maintain personal devotional time? Two, is worship a high priority with me? Three, is one of my goals maturing in Christ? Four, am I considerate of those people who live closest to me? Five, how do I cope with discouraging circumstances? Six, am I, in, am I able to accept those who are different from me? Seven, Am I resentful toward others, and do I hold grudges? Eight, can I forgive? Nine, do I give time for meaningful ministry? Ten, am I gracious in attitude? Number eleven, have I gotten used to being half alive? That's the question that ought to stay with us. Have I gotten used to being half alive? Repeating, how are we doing in this process of loving God and others? I believe in the Holy Spirit because of an impossible task without Him. Let us pray. Lord, again, we pause to offer you our thanks. We know that there are things that cannot happen without your presence in our lives. There will be no greater works. There will be no praying in your name. And there will be no obedient love. We know how desperately we need and depend upon the Holy Spirit. So send your Holy Spirit upon us. Let that Spirit live within us and let us be all that the Spirit would desire us to be. Thank you again for being with us tonight and always. It's in your name. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us for this service. I pray that you'll continue to be with us on Thursday nights and I pray that it'll be a blessing to you. Good night. I count it all at loss Lead me to the cross Where your love poured out Bring me to my knees Lord, I lay me down Rid me of myself I belong to you Oh, lead me Lead me to
Oh 